Hello and welcome back. It's David and Brent on December the 4th. Wow, it's already December. Hard to believe um, <laughs> that we are here. Just a few weeks left in 2020. We have three things to cover today, Brent. Net farm income, uh, talk about farmland values, and you're going to walk us through your latest article on decision-making. You know, that's a big theme here for us is decision-making. So let's start off by breaking down the net farm income numbers. A lot of headlines pointing to another round of higher income and higher direct payments. We've crossed that $40 billion threshold that we've been following since May. I think we're at a point where we can maybe resolve that question, even though the question wasn't the question could have stayed open all the way till February. We have crossed $40 billion, an all-time high. That's in government farm payments, right? Direct payments. Yeah, sorry yeah. about that. Direct payments. Um, Brent, I'm going to let you comment about that number here in just a second. But the other thing I want to mention is that the new numbers from the USDA, these are usually a quiet report. So they update three times a year, February, August, and in November, 1st of December. This is usually a quiet update. Why is it such a big update? Well, they have basically priced in all the improvements in the farm economy of the last three months. We've seen commodity prices, you know, December corn went from 320 to 410, 415. We've seen soybeans rally. We've seen the CFAP2 payment. This is really capturing all of that. And Brent, you brought up a good point as we were preparing, thinking about those direct payments and how there's a little bit of an asterisk here when we look into the record books. Well, for, for one thing, yeah. So the direct payments on the government support side include the PPP loans, about $5 billion worth, I think. Six. Six, which is not something we consider a traditional farm program payment. So it's a little bit different than some of the stuff we normally put in that bucket. But it's clear those payments were substantial. And it's clear that uh, net farm income we knew was going to be higher. We've been kind of saying that for a while. I was a little surprised at the magnitude of the number. I didn't think it would quite be that high. I mean, in nominal terms, this is the highest since 2013 that we've seen. In real terms, it's the second highest in the last 10 years. So pretty lofty numbers there in the farm sector. And I think that is, so I guess stepping back from, I don't like to get too caught up in the exact number because as you've told us all along, um, these numbers change a lot. <coughs> Excuse me. And and we can expect that they're going to change a lot again by February. So I, you know, I would say realize that those numbers are going to change, but also don't miss the message, which is things have gotten a lot better in the farm sector. And that kind of brings us to the question you raised about farmland values and cash rents. And I think, you know, you're going to see a robust uh, land market and cash rental market heading into the next year. I, if all the levers are being pulled positively right now. Income went from, boy, everybody's worried about, we're not going to have any to, we got a lot of money and interest rates are even lower than they were a year ago. Everything is pointing up to me on farmland values, um, and I think rents will probably be the same way. We've heard from several people, AEI premium subscribers who have reached out and said, hey, I'm seeing this, I'm hearing that. A lot of anecdotal evidence coming in from sales. We don't have any new data, right? We don't have any new reports coming out. And sometimes we hear people saying cash rents are going to stay tempered. <laughs> Other people saying farmland values will stay tempered, but cash rents are going to go up. And it's, there's this interesting, I guess, dichotomy 
there's a lot of pent-up enthusiasm. Some people are telling it comes from the rent. Some people are saying it's coming on the farmland value, sort of this capitalization rate. But I think to your point, Brent, both of those are trending the right direction. And I think that's going to be a really big thing to keep an eye on. I think it's going to be a hot market. I think that's going to be a, it's going to be something we haven't seen in a while. And it's going to be a big, big unknown for the next few months. But I think Bruce is going to have to think about that as they go to renegotiate bids or or make new bids. Right. I think the equipment market's the same way. I mean, (laughs) if you could go to a live auction today, I think you'd see some pretty uh, robust live bidding. Uh, Of course, now it's all online, but equipment market's going to be hot. Uh, Everything, I think, is is heating up a lot of stimulus as so to speak sloshing around in the, in the farm economy. We wrote the whiplash article. I think that's the way we're kind of referring to it as stimulus. You know, you got a lot of government money, you got a lot of now commodity money in the market and an outlook for 2021 that is as positive as we've had for a while. So I think you got a lot of bullishness. The thing I think to keep in back of everyone's mind is that what are December 2021 corn prices right now on the board of trade? They're about, I don't know, 408, 409, I think the other day when I looked. That is not a number that normally would cause me to think everybody's saying, hold, you know, hold on, things are going to be a lot better. So it's kind of interesting. We've got all this kind of stimulus in the cake. And then you kind of look at those prices and go, well, th- those aren't numbers that should cause a lot of exuberance. I mean, better, obviously better than the past. But I mean, the crop insurance price has been right at $4 for the last two years we're not significantly higher on new crop than we have on old crop. Yes. So I'm going to take this one step further, boring. Let's get in our time machine and let's go back to December last year. Okay. What was the new crop bids a year ago? $4 a bushel. They are not that much different. What was going on with China? Phase one trade agreement was coming around the corner there were uncertainty about the China situation, right? There was, and I think it, today there is still uncertainty. We don't know what the next administration is going to do. It looks like there might be some stability, uh, maybe more stability, but there's uncertainty about that. And so I, I in, in, oh, by the way, a year ago, we were telling people you can't count on another round of ad hoc payments. And so here we are again today, $4 corn, uncertainty about China, don't count another round of ad hoc payments. We have no idea what's going to happen once we tear the calendar sheet and, and move to the next year. But this fundamentals, they're improved, right? There's some improvements, but not maybe as much as what we're seeing in the actual behaviors or sentiments that we're measuring and observing. I think it's been so bad for so long that uh, when things all of a sudden break to the upside, you, it feels so much better. I mean, <laughs> attitudes are just so much better. And so I'm not trying to throw cold water on all of that i think it is better and the fundamental situation is better than it was last year at this time especially in soybeans yes Um, so there's reason for optimism but sometimes it's it's okay to i think step back and and just try and really assess where where things are at and uh, i think that's useful 
so there's an ideas that make us better that that was up a couple weeks ago and i forget the title but the premise was imagine if you have a house and on one side of the house it was a ski lift on the other side of the house it was a, a beach and the house temperature was 72 degrees if you spent all day on the ski lift and you walked in the house it'd feel warm right and if you spent all day on the beach and you came in it'd feel cool and so 72 degrees is 72 degrees, but how it feels is yeah. relevant to where you just came from. And that's your point is $4 corn today feels a whole lot better than it did last year at this time. Now there's some reasons why, but the relative feeling, so it's not exactly 72 to 72, right? But the idea here is we're feeling a whole lot better and we have to keep all that in mind. We went from a really bleak outlook in August. It's hard to really capture how quickly things change in August when we were I mean, Brent, you and I talked about on this recording, is the USDA going to do another round of stimulus? Because we're at 320 corn and it we're looking at a cash price with a two in front of it. And that is really bleak. And the USDA was, I don't know, slow dragging their feet to make that CFAP2 announcement. And it was getting dire uh, really quickly. Yeah. So here we are now with an entirely different set of outcomes and then they make cfap2 and the market switches almost literally overnight so the both payments hit hit almost identical right cash market green market just explodes in a lot of areas around the country i mean harvest price cash price levels are n- never seen before at least here and so it's just a, a really interesting time. Read that article on Whiplash if you haven't read it. Uh, I think it kind of explains it pretty well. We're thinking about. So I want to make one comment, and then I'm going to let Brent uh, wrap this this recording up with an article he just written. If you were to look at the net farm income numbers today, and you're going to say, wow, commodity prices are higher than they were six months ago or a year ago. Direct payments are higher. Why do we have all this ad hoc stimulus, right? You're going to start to question why we have the stimulus in in ag in light of all these higher commodity prices. And you start to wonder, well, you know, was that a good decision or not? And Brent, you're going to talk about how we should evaluate decisions. And I just want to pull the curtain back a little bit and say, keep in mind, the decision to make CFAP 1 and CFAP 2 were made in a different era than we are today. And I'm going to make a segue here. Listen to episode five of Escaping 1980. The, the parallels here, you would think that we were crafting this story. We were planning this out when we were recording all this, and we weren't. This is just the way the chips have been falling. But in 1983, a very similar thing happened. The USDA was looking down the barrel of a bad problem. They stepped in with a supply management program known as PIC. And then there was a drought, and people were really upset about why did you pay producers to not plant, and now we have not enough crop and supplies are tight. And so how do you evaluate a decision? And I'm going to let that be the segue to Brent's conversation here. And I think that's a pretty good one because it really hits on what I wrote about in a, in the latest article about how to decide. It is, it's just unbelievable to me, the parallels. So another plug for Escaping 19, if you haven't listened to it, I think it's worth listening to. Start, you can listen to them at any time. They are not time sensitive, so to speak. I mean, you go back and start at the beginning and uh, listen to them. They're, they're, I think you'll find them really interesting. So let me uh, share. So just got through uh, reading a really interesting book called How to Decide written by Annie Duke, who has written some really good books. And I I personally really like this book because it's super easy to read, for one. 
And two, it has a lot of uh, really good ideas in it. And three, she has some really interesting worksheets to help you walk through how to make decisions and how to be better at making decisions, which is a lot of what AFN and AEI Premium are about. And the obvious example when you read this was sit back. If you go around and ask any corn farmer or soybean farmer, was selling corn or soybeans in the summer a good idea or a bad idea? Well, what do you think they're going to answer? They're all going to say it was a terrible idea. Oh my gosh, what a, you know, it's, it's not just a bad idea, a horrifically bad idea. And her point is we often confuse one of her key points, I think, is something called about hindsight bias and outcome bias. That is a classic example of judging the decision based on the outcome. The outcome is clear. Prices for both corn and soybeans rallied tremendously since the middle of the summer. So on the outcome basis, it was a really, it was a bad outcome, but it doesn't really say anything about the quality of the decision. In order to evaluate the decision, we really have to go back to what is the information we had at the time of the decision? What were the factors we were thinking about? What was our process we, we used to arrive at that decision? So we want to base that decision on the quality of the decision, not the quality of the outcome. And she uses this really nice box and she's got decision quality. And, you know, to simplify, we say we can make good decisions and we can make bad decisions. And then there's outcomes and we can get good outcomes and we can have bad outcomes. Sometimes we make a good decision and we get a bad outcome. And that we might characterize as something like bad luck. So if you're listening on the podcast or audio, we're looking at a two by two matrix. And on oh. the uh, and so there's two types of outcomes, or I guess there's two types of situations for the decision quality, good or bad. And there's two types of ways we should evaluate the outcome, good or bad. And you just mentioned good decision, bad outcome. That's called bad luck. Okay. So sort of this two by two matrix. So go ahead. I sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you. no, it's a good thing. I forget about that. And you know, the obvious case too is we can make a bad decision and get a really good outcome. She calls that dumb luck. You know, you, you made a bad decision, but it turned out well, dumb luck. And then bad decisions and bad luck are, you know, well, I, that's kind of just desserts. And sometimes we think of good decisions and good outcomes. Uh, and that's an earned reward. And I think that way of thinking, it really kind of puts it in perspective. Because too often we judge our quality of our decision-making based on the outcome. And if we do that, we're just going to kind of flip-flop around, making probably a lot of bad decisions. Because, you know, there is a big element of chance here. And 2020 just plays that out in spades. It's not to say nobody could see that there was upside potential for the grain markets in the in the middle of the summer. But you also have to ask yourself, you know, what were the implications if we had even lower prices? And if you're managing risk, sometimes, you know, you need to take some some actions to kind of protect against that downside risk. And so it wasn't necessarily a bad decision to sell grain in the middle of the summer. It was a bad outcome. But it wasn't necessarily a bad decision. In order to answer that question, you have to really go back and, and evaluate your decision. Did you have a process? What did that process look like? What, were the, what was the information you had? Was it a, a good decision? So 
just base your decision outcome because if you do that, you know, the lesson you might learn from 2020 is, oh, well, the grain price is just going to rally in the summer, in the fall. Well, that, that doesn't always happen either. So think carefully through, you know, evaluating decisions in these times of uncertainty. Same thing with USDA. They did the same thing. I mean, things look bleak. CFAP too was needed. And then USDA realized demand was a lot stronger than we thought and production was going to be a lot smaller than we thought. And all of a sudden grain price rally, well, maybe we didn't need CFAP too. But had things worked out slightly differently, uh, we would have been needing it big time. And then you might not have been able to get it. Brent sent me the book. So, you know, it's an important book to read when Brent sends me a copy of it. I'm, I'm working my way through it. Um, this matrix, quality of the decision, quality outcome, is a really important lesson because it helps us really get critical and roll up the sleeves and recognizing that, you know, on one hand, we can untangle the outcome from the quality of the decision. We can accept the reality that I made a good decision, but I had bad luck, right? Or a bad outcome. And, and on the other hand, I always kind of laugh thinking about the coffee shop that all of us sit around and, and chat with. All the farmers at the table we sit at are, make good decisions, but have bad luck. But all the other jokers in town have make bad decisions and have nothing but good luck. Well, that's that could be true, right? For a little bit. But even if you look at, the business news, right? You always hear people saying like, oh, this is a bad company. They make bad decisions. They're just getting lucky. And it's sort of this question like, well, if you keep saying that for years and years, they probably are just making good decisions. And so it's really important to step back and realize there's uncertainty, right? We all make decisions and uncertainty plays out. You know, lady luck flips over the card and that's always there. But we have to be cautious of how we let that narrative impact our decision-making. And we got to make sure we untangle those. Otherwise we get the wrong signals. We trick ourselves and we shorthand ourselves and it really limits how we can improve ourselves down the road. Another classic example of this just in this last year was uh, the first, remember the first CFAP payment was based on stored grain. Remember yeah. how upset people were that they didn't get a payment because they sold their grain well, I shouldn't sell my grain now in the future. Well, no, that's not the that's not the right way to think about that decision. That was a luck. It was a luck outcome that USDA came out with this program, which none of us, I don't think, could have anticipated in November of last year. So to to use that outcome to adjust your decision making, I think is is not the best advice. I think the readers of our site will find this book really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in it. And it's easy to read. That's the thing I like about it. The problem I had with reading is I just sort of, I kept flipping through and reading kind of one chapter here, one chapter there. And so I ended, I've been looking up all the trees. So it's sort of a workbook, right? You can work your way through. Uh, I was looking at all the trees and I need to go back and sort of scan, get the 30,000 foot picture. But Brent, I'm going to wrap up on that. That is a really important lesson that you just told us is that if we don't separate the quality of the decision and the quality of the outcome, your example there about that CFAP one you don't ever want to build your marketing plan into the future about this program that we've seen, I don't know, one time in a hundred years of history. Like you do not want that to be waiting in your decisions coming down the road. You just need to be able to say, man, that was a luck thing. That was lady chance. Right. And, and you have to move past that. You can, but our memories are going to put a lot of weight on that. We're going to remember CFAP one, 
for years, think about the pick program in the 80s. We're still talking about that, right? We're going to be talking about CFAP and MFP for the rest of our careers. But step yeah. back, it's only a small sliver. We got to we'll recognize we shouldn't use those examples to build our plans. And, and I'll wrap up with that. Thank you all for listening. Uh, lots of good stuff on the website this week. Make sure you catch up. Update your forecast, and we'll catch you all here next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.